Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Galatians chapter 4. Paul has been appealing to theological arguments to convince the Galatians that they must follow the true gospel. He has been appealing to appealing to his own conversion experience in chapters 1 and 2, showing him that he was a true apostle, that he was teaching the true gospel which came from the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he appealed to the Galatians' own conversion experience in chapter 3, verses 1-5, through 5, where he said, how did you come to know Christ? Was it through the works of the law or through hearing by faith? And obviously they had to respond. It was through hearing by faith. And so he says, well, then how must you continue in the faith? You must do it by hearing, not by works of the law. And then he appeals to Old Testament history in the middle of chapter 3 when he talks about Abraham and how even Abraham's justification was by faith. It was never by works. He wasn't counted as righteous. He didn't have righteousness applied to his account through works. It was always through faith. Um, Abraham, chapter 3, verse 6, believed God, faith, and God credited, credited it to him as righteousness. And then at the end of chapter 3, he moved on to talk about uh, our adoption, the nature of salvation and adoption, that that as believers we have been adopted into God's family. And if we are adopted into God's family, that means that we must live a certain way. He now turns to an appeal for his love for them. That is, Paul wants to show them, these Galatian believers, that, that he loves them and that he wants what's best for them. And so he really shows his heart for them. He wants them to see that they must accept the truth because accepting the truth is the means by which they will be transformed. They must accept the truth. Let me read the passage that we'll consider this morning, beginning in verse 12 of Galatians chapter 4. This is the Word of God. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong, but you know it is because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So... Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We should learn today through this passage that we must accept the truth. Even when it is is not the most pleasant thing that we want to hear, we must accept the truth because it is the means of our transformation, of our growth in godliness. In verses 12-18, through Paul 
shows them that they must accept the truth. First, he talks about how they must accept the truth as they once did in verses 12 through 14. They, they initially accepted Paul. They initially accept the truth that came from Paul. In fact, they did it without reservation. Notice Paul's urging with them in verse 12, I beg you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Or in other words, I, had, I have already come like you were. I used to have a problem trying to follow after the law. And I looked down on those who, who uh, did not follow the law. But you accepted me, even though I was like that. And now I'm asking you to stop looking down on people who are not following the law of Moses. Paul wants them to see that, that they have switched places. Paul is now the one who is accepting of people who are not following the law of Moses and that's the way Paul used to be. That's the way the Galatians used to be. There was a time when Paul was a master of the Jewish law, but then he was freed from that and he became like the Galatians. He was free now to follow Christ, not enslaved to the law like he once was. He was instead like the Galatians were, free to follow Christ. And Paul says, now I want you to become like you used to be. Become like me, like you used to be. Notice at the end of verse 12, you have done me no wrong. When I came to you, he was saying here, following my conversion, I had been freed from enslavement from the Jewish practices, and yet you did not reject me. You weren't like a lot of the other Jews and the, all, all the other people who followed after the law. You weren't like that. You didn't reject me. You did me no wrong. Instead, you accepted me. And we're going to see that he accepted him as if Paul was an angel or Christ himself in verse 14. But now the Galatians have reverted back to where Paul used to be, where the Galatians used to be. And Paul wants them to stop enslaving themselves to this performance-based lifestyle and start living free to follow Christ, living as free men, free women to follow Christ. So they accepted Paul with no reservation, verse 12. Verses 13 and 14, they received him like they would receive a messenger of God. They received him like they would receive a messenger of God. It says, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. First, in verse 13, Paul describes his terrible physical condition when he first met them. Uh, he talks about the first time that he came to the Galatian region. Now, the first time that he came, he says that I had this great bodily illness, this bodily condition, yet you didn't mistreat me or reject me because of this. Now, there's lots of speculation as to what this bodily illness could be. Some suggest that it's epilepsy. But there's not really any proof for that, just a, a guess. Uh, others suggest that it's an eye problem. At the end of the book, chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, See what large red letters I write with my own hand. So it, it's, it sounds like as if he has some sort of eye problem there. In verse 15, this is where they also get this from. Look at the end of the verse. 
For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Now, what is Paul saying there? Is he saying that he has an eye problem there? Or is he just saying that that they have they would be willing to make great sacrifices for me? And I think if we think about it, it's probably the latter, right? Suppose he used the um, the phrase, I would, if you could, you would cut off your leg and give it to me. Does that mean that Paul has the problem with his leg, some bodily illness with regard to his leg, maybe gangrene or something? He has to get it amputated? No, that's not what he's saying. The point of verse 15 is, you would do anything for me. Even give up your greatest, your greatest resource, your own eyes. You do that for me. Not that uh, that necessarily means that Paul has an eye problem. So that's really just speculation to say that that um, that's what this physical problem is here. Now, it very well could be that Paul did have eye problems, but that's not necessarily what he's talking about in verses 13 and 14. And uh, really, to be honest, we don't know for sure what it is because the Scriptures don't say. But the best guess, in my view is that it's probably that he had a case of malaria. Malaria was normally contracted down near the lowlands, uh, the, where it was a little wetter. And the Galatian region was actually in, a high, in higher lands, and so this would give him a place to recuperate, to get, get away. And, uh, of course, you know malaria can be a very debilitating disease uh, or illness. We have missionaries over in Africa who have contracted this at times. It's very... It's a very terrible illness. It brings about fever and chills and headaches and fatigue and nausea and so on. And the symptoms go in cycles because basically what you have there in your, inside of your body is a parasite and they, they die off and reproduce and so on. They reproduce and die off. And, and so you're having all these cycles. So you have a, a time where you feel terribly and then you'll feel better and then and, and it gets worse and so on. And so it's like having the worst flu that you've ever had. And, um, and this is how Paul came to them. Imagine what that would be like to have, to have to speak in front of a group of people. This is how Paul was. He's in one of his worst states bodily, likely. Now, again, we don't know for sure that it's malaria, but it, whatever the case is, there was something that could have been looked down upon and despised and loathed by other people. But Paul says... Here's what I commend you about. You didn't do that. I came to you in such a weak condition. Yet you you accepted me. You received my teaching. You didn't reject me. Instead, notice verse 14 at the end, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus Himself. It was as if an angel, a messenger from God, or even Christ Himself stood in your midst and you accepted Me like that. You received the truth as being from God even though I had this terrible bodily illness. Now, I need to explain uh, the first part of verse 14 because there is some uh, difference in translation with regard to uh, this first phrase. In the translation that I'm reading from the New American Standard, it reads, And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise. And that which was a trial to you. Okay? But in the King James Version, it reads this way, My temptation was in my flesh, ye despised not. Okay, so 
what we basically have two very different translations here. The New American Standard saying the bodily condition was a trial to you. The King James Version is saying that Paul's temptation was not despised by the Galatians. So, what is he talking about here? Is he talking about the trial that it was for the Galatians to receive somebody with bodily illness? Or was it, was it Paul's temptation? And um, the reason we have a different translation is because the word trial here in the New American Standard can also be translated as temptation. There's only one word for those two words in the English language. There's only one word in the Greek language. This was explained to us by Dr. Combs when he was here on a Wednesday night when he went walked us through James. Remember, count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials. But the same Greek word that's translated trials there is also used later on in James chapter 1 where it says, let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. Okay, so really what the translators have to do is they have to make a choice. What does this word mean? Does it mean trial or does it mean temptation? And the way that they determine the meaning of it or the right translation is they have to know the context. What's being said around it? All right, so so we can understand why the King James Version would put temptation there. But really the, the difference in translation has more to do with whose temptation or trial this is. Okay? Was this a temptation of a trial or a trial that the Galatians were experiencing? That's what the New Americans suggest, that it was a trial that they were experiencing having to receive someone of bodily illness. Or was it a temptation or trial that Paul was experiencing? The King James Version says, my temptation. That is Paul's temptation. And um, so the way that we answer this question is really to understand the history of the transmission of the text of Scripture. You know that the Bible was not originally written in the English language, but was written in the Greek language. And so what our English translators have to do is to determine what the best translation of that original document was. And just to be frank with you, the the translators have to use the best manuscripts, the best copies of the originals that they have in their possession when they're making the translation. Okay, so for example, the King James Version was written when? Anybody have any idea? 1611, right? And the best manuscripts that they had at that time that were discovered and known were from the later 5th century to the 12th century. Okay, so they they depended heavily on those documents. Those were the best ones that they had. In fact, in the preface of the King James Bible, the original King James Bible, they the uh, the editors write in there that this is the best that we can do with what we have. We recognize that it, you know, it's not necessarily perfect, but this is the best that we can do with the the, the manuscripts that we have. When the New American Standard was written, uh, written really in the 70s, 1970s. The best manuscripts were the second to fourth century. So the King James Version, fifth to the twelfth century, later, later on, and then earlier manuscripts were found after that, uh, even recently with the Dead Sea Scrolls and so on. And so we have newer manuscripts. And so the New American Standard had more reliable 
copies of the original. And so that's why you really have these two different readings. Okay, one, you have the New American Standard with the older copies of the Scriptures, the ones that are closer to the original. And they say that it was our trial, the Galatians trial. And the newer manuscripts, the ones that are farther away from the original, King James used, they say my temptation or my trial. And that's why we have the difference. So, I would suggest to you that while the, the King James Version is a good translation and um, I grew up on it, I still use it on occasion. I'm looking up different texts and things and I still recite a lot of what's in the King James Bible because that's in my mind. Um, I do think this is a better translation in this case. All right, So I just thought I'd uh, let you see why that there's a difference there if you're using the King James Bible this morning. All right, and this makes sense that this would be the trial of the Galatians because the context shows that Paul's talking about that they their acceptance is what is at stake here. I had a bodily illness and yet you accepted me. You didn't reject me. And so that was really a trial to you. It was a chance for you, an opportunity for you to turn away from me and from the truth. But you didn't do that. Instead, at the end of verse 14, you received me as an angel of God, it was as if they were here in your midst and you received me just like you would receive them. So I'm appealing to you, Paul saying to the Galatians, I'm appealing to you. If you received me that way before, then what's changed? What has changed? Verse 15, Where then is that sense of blessing that you had? Verse 16, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? When I came to you, I told you the truth the first time and you accepted me. I'm coming here telling you the truth a second time through this letter. I'm telling you the truth a second time. What's changed? And Paul gives us an idea of what has changed. Look at verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing? The sense of blessing is gone, in other words. Or at least it has dwindled. And the sense of blessing that he's talking about is um, probably helpful if we understand what the original Greek word is there. I often don't quote the Greek word unless it has some value to you. And, and this word actually is the word makaria, the word that's translated blessing. And the reason that that has some value, it has some value to me because we have some friends, Jennifer and I have some friends who named their daughter makaria. And... Um, their father is actually a seminary professor, so that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In fact, he was here uh, last summer, I think it was, Dr. John Aloisi. Uh, so they named their, their uh, daughter Makaria, which means blessing or joy. And so here's what Paul's saying. Where is that sense of joy? He may be saying here, some people think this, some, some uh, commentators think, that he's talking about losing your first joy, like the, the church in Revelation that they lost their first love. I think it's at Ephesus there. You lost your first love. Maybe Paul's saying that. You lost your first joy. But, but if we think about the context of Galatians, more likely Paul is talking about the blessing of having received the Holy Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Notice verse, chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Okay, and that receiving of the Spirit really is a blessing. And so that's what I'm suggesting to you. He's talking about here in verse 15. Where is that sense of having received the Holy Spirit? Where is it? Because now you're rejecting me and you're rejecting the truth in the process. Where is it? If you still have the power of the Spirit like you once did, then why are you not willing to pluck out your eyes? Again, verse 15, we already looked at this, but why are you not willing to give everything, your your greatest resource to me like you would before for the sake of the truth? Why are you not? What's changed? Where is that sense of blessing of the Holy Spirit? And so here's what he wants from them. Look at verse 16. So, okay, so here's where we are. I want you to become like me because I became like you. Verse 12. When I came to you, I came with a bodily illness. You received me. You didn't reject me. You didn't loathe me. Where's that sense of blessing that you once had? Now, here's the point of application for them and for us. So, or so then, have I become, verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? With your actions and now your your current rejection of me, you are making me out to be your enemy. But I'm not your enemy. Just like I wasn't before, I came to bring you the truth You accepted me. I'm telling you the truth now. Why are you rejecting me? Why am I now being treated like your enemy? And Paul's going to show us the answer in verses 17 and 18. Why their extreme love and concern was replaced by hostility. It was because their eyes moved away from the truth of the Gospel Unto the, the false teaching of these teachers that have come in, these Judaizers. You have turned away from the gospel to these false teachers' ideas, and that's why you're treating me like an enemy. That's why you're not receiving the truth. So we must accept the truth. And Paul says in verses 17 and 18, in order to do that, we have to recognize who the real enemies are. Verse 17, they eagerly seek you, not commendably. They. Who do you think the they is there? Paul's opponents, right? The Judaizers, the, the false teachers. They eagerly seek you, but notice, not commendably. That word commendably is the word that's also translated in, the, in other parts of the New Testament as zealously. That is, they were zealous, but it wasn't a godly zeal. It was done with wrong motives. Notice what those motives, motives are in verse 17 at the end. But they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. What kind of motives do they have? Do they have motives that are seeking to glorify God? Do they have motives that are seeking to exalt the Gospel in Jesus Christ? No, it says at the end of the verse, they're wishing to shut you out from Me, Paul's saying. They're willing, wishing to shut you out from Me so that you will follow after them. And that's why their motives are not commendable. 
I said, uh, I'm, I'm, I gave you the wrong phrase there. I said commendably is the word that's also translated zealously, but it's actually the word, the two words up there in verse 17 at the top. They eagerly seek. That's the word that's zealous. Okay? So they zealously seek you, but not commendably, not favorably, not with good motives. That's the idea there. And so Paul takes his statement in verse 17 and then he qualifies it in verse 18. He says it's not wrong here to be zealous as long as it's grounded in the truth. Notice verse 18. But it's good always to be eagerly sought. That's that zealous word again or phrase. It's, it, it is good always to be sought zealously in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. So what was at fault here for these false teachers was not their zeal. It's not wrong to be zealous, he's saying. But when they're doing it for the wrong motive, Paul talks about this in other places as well. Romans chapter 10, verse 2. Talking about the Jews, the ones who have rejected Christ, and they say, he says, they have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with what? With knowledge. There's lots of people out there who are passionate about what they believe. But it's not in accordance with knowledge. Paul saying, Galatians, they're not seeking you for your best interests or God's best interests. They're seeking you for them. So that you will follow them, not commendably. Paul, in contrast to his opponents, never sought converts to himself. He would not have been upset if the Jewish leaders came in after him and Barnabas, came into the church, and led more people to Christ, to the true Gospel. Paul would not have been upset. He's not saying, ah, you've taken some of my my followers. He's not making followers for himself, is he? He was upset because they were taking his followers and turning them from followers of Christ to followers of Christ themselves. And that's where he has a problem. It's not allegiance to Paul that he's concerned about. It's allegiance to Christ. And so our goal should never be when it comes to helping other people to to get people to follow us finally, right? We're not trying to make little Jacobs or little Pauls or little Mikes or little Sarahs, right? We're trying to make little Christs because if we get people to follow us only, then we failed. If at the end of their life, they stand before God and say, you know what, I did this because this person told me to. What we're trying to do is see people follow Christ. Now, Paul does say, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay, We understand that. But ultimately, he's not saying follow me only. Because in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he says, if anyone comes to you with another gospel other than the one that, that you had received, let that person be accursed, even if it's me or another angel. Okay, so he's saying, even I could go astray. So ultimately, who you need to follow is follow Christ. The problem for the Galatians is that they were acting one way while Paul was there, another when the Judaizers were there. That's what he says in verse 18. But it's good always to be eagerly sought in commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. 
recognize the motives of those who are are leading you. Are they leading you so that they get more praise for themselves? Are they leading you to Christ? Regardless of the praise that they will or will not receive. Paul wants them to be accepting the truth. And that's what we should be doing. We should be seeking to accept the truth. And the reason that we must accept the truth, verses 19 and 20, is because the truth is the means of our transformation. This is a good zeal that Paul had. Paul was zealously pursuing their transformation. Notice the end of verse 19. Until Christ is formed in you. Paul wanted to see their transformation. And he knew that it wouldn't come through following those false teachers, but through following Christ. Following the truth. The truth is the means of our transformation. Paul, here after coming down on them somewhat harshly in these last several paragraphs, reminds them about his love for them in verse 19. My children, with whom I am again in labor. Paul still holds out hope for them. He still thinks that they're going to turn back to the truth. He says, I'm again in labor. The the word labor there has the idea of birth pangs. It's used only other, two other times in the New Testament. And both refer to childbirth. Look at verse 27. Here's one of the times it's used. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. The fourth line there, labor, is the same word that Paul uses in verse 19, to refer to birth pangs. And so he's saying, I'm laboring with you. It's not a weak word. It's not a word that just means I work hard. But this word in verse 19 has the idea with severe labor, the pinnacle of human pain. This is how I feel right now in trying to get you to follow the truth. He's not saying that I give birth to you spiritually. He's not saying that. He's simply showing how hard he's struggling for them to be transformed. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Here, Paul is showing that he is happy to suffer for the sake of someone else's salvation and growth in godliness. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This goes along with what we sang earlier that I'm happy to share in the sufferings. Notice verse 24, the sufferings for your sake, Colossians. I think the same thing is true with regard to his sufferings for the Galatians. I'm happy to go through these birth pangs for you because I know that in the end it will result in something good. Turn back to Galatians chapter 4. 
But right now, as he looks at the situation of the Galatians, it seems hopeless. Look at verse 11. We saw this last week. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. It's a different word that he uses there for labor than he does in verse 19, but the idea is the same. I feel like all the work that I've done for you is in vain, as if it's worthless, empty. It doesn't amount to anything. Now, he's going to say in chapter 5 that I, I think that you're going to pass the test. I think that you're going to come through. But as he looks at it right now, it seems daunting, hopeless. But he loves them so much that he's willing to go through this labor, these labor pangs for them so that they would receive the truth because it is the means of their transformation. Notice the ultimate goal here at the end of verse 19. Until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. The word formed is only used one other uh, is only used one time in all the New Testament. It's right here. This has the idea of sanctification. He's laboring like a woman in childbirth to see them become mature in Christ. Have Christ formed in them. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 20. Paul wants to see what happened to him happen to them. And that is chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Christ has been formed in me. Christ has born in me spiritual fruit that cannot be taken away. In Galatians, what I'm seeing right now is that you're not bearing spiritual fruit and that's what I want to see happen. I'm going to keep laboring like these pain and, and, and experiencing these pangs of childbirth until Christ is formed in you to a place where you bear spiritual fruit. And then verse 20, Paul wishes that he could speak to them in person because he doesn't really know how they're responding to all of this. Verse 20 reads, But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. I think maybe a better word to lead off that verse would be how I could wish. How I wish. It's his desire. I wish I could be with you in person so I could talk to you and get your reaction and see where you're going. But right now, the end of verse 20, I'm perplexed about you. I don't know if I should go on to more challenge of, uh, challenging of your, of your beliefs or if I should move to encouragement and exhortation. I don't know where to go from here because I'm not with you in person. It's hard to communicate through letters, isn't it? We must accept the truth because the truth is the means of our transformation. See, those who give the truth are concerned about your transformation. And that means that those who tell you the truth are your best friends. Those who tell you the truth are your best friends. Do you know know who my best friend is? Jesus. Okay, that's a trick question. All right, let me, let me try that again. Who, do you know who my best friend on this earth is? It's my wife, right? And you know why that is? 
I mean, obviously we've committed, we've covenanted ourselves together. But, but two, she knows me. And she speaks the truth to me. And even when I don't want to hear it sometimes, that I've been unkind with my children or unfeeling with how I deal with people, then she tells me the truth. And the people who tell you the truth are your best friends. There's nothing better for you than to hear the truth. And this is what Paul was concerned about for the Galatians. He was concerned about them receiving the truth, even if they didn't want to do it. Do you remember what the false teachers were claiming about Paul earlier in the book? They were claiming that Paul was changing his gospel, supposedly, in order to get more followers. And Paul's like, look at me, I'm coming after you. If I wanted to receive more people, I would just lay down and, and agree with whatever you're saying. But, but I'm actually saying something that's confrontational. The Proverbs say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That those who love you will tell you the truth. And that means two things. That means, first, we must deepen our relationship with with truth speakers. We must deepen our relationship with truth speakers so so that they will be able to tell us the truth. And here's a very practical way that you can do that. Commit yourself to a local church where the truth is spoken. And when I say that, I don't just mean from the pulpit. That is important. You should have the truth spoken to you from the pulpit. But I'm also talking about among the people. If you're not a member of a local church right now, then you ought to commit yourself not only to be able to receive accountability from them so that they can speak the truth to you, but also so that you can be accountable to them or or you can make them accountable to you. That is, you speak the truth to them. Maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you don't want the truth spoken to you. But what I'm suggesting to you is the most important thing for you is to hear the truth. There's nothing more than, than that we need than to have the truth be told to us. And so if those who tell us the truth are our best friends, then we need to first deepen our relationship with truth speakers. And secondly, we must speak the truth to other people even when it's not easily accepted. Even when it may be rejected, we have to speak the truth to other people. Be willing to do this, even if the recipient doesn't want to hear it. Now, there is a, there is a way that we handle this. Okay, That doesn't mean we just go up and just spill out all of our minds. This is what I'm thinking about you. This is what the Bible says. You know, there, there is a way to handle that. There's a tactful way to, to give out the truth. But generally speaking, most of us don't have that problem that we just say whatever we think and we just tell everybody whatever. We tend to have the problem that I'm afraid that this is not going to be well received, so I'm not going to say it, right? And what are we governed by when we do that? We're governed by the fear of other people rather than the fear of God. God says for us to speak the truth to one another in love, then we ought to do it. Those who tell you the truth are your best friends. Number two, in speaking the truth to other people, we must be patient with them. 
Don't give up on those who seem to be turning away from the faith. Paul could have just as easily thrown in the towel here with the Galatians. You know what? I'm, I'm done with you. I mean, look, read through the book of 1 Corinthians sometimes. Sometimes. And see how wicked of a, of a body of believers that he has there. And those type of people, when they pop up in our churches, we tend to just throw them aside and say, you're worthless. I'm done with you. Get out of here. Right? Be patient with those to whom you're speaking the truth. Don't give up on them. Thomas Schreiner says that Christian life is not about straight line growth. Love responds to people where they are, not where they, ho- where they hope they will be. That is, where the person who is speaking the truth to them hopes they will be. It speaks to them where they are. But at the same time, love longs for the perfecting of the loved. Loving others means to call them to love Christ with all their hearts and souls. We accept them where they are while encouraging them to scale new heights. Be patient with those to whom you're speaking the truth. Remember how long it took you. Right? You didn't accept the truth right away and turn into a mature Christian right away. Or wherever you're at in your Christian walk. You didn't get to the place that you are right now. Overnight, did you? Neither did I. When I become impatient with people or not accepting the truth, I have to remind myself of how people were patient with me when I had been often like Peter, denying Christ three times, right? God was, and Christ was patient with Peter and still used him. And I think we ought to do the same thing. Be patient with those to whom we're speaking the truth. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not a straight line growth. It's often hilly, isn't it? Hilly growth. Number three, point of application. First, those who tell you the truth are your best friends. Second, in speaking the truth to other people, we have to be patient. And third, when it comes to speaking the truth, don't be weary in well-doing. We look at other people the people to whom we're trying to see Christ formed in them. And we just see just such stagnation and sometimes apathy. Don't, don't give up on them. Don't be weary in well-doing. Recognize that spiritual growth requires a lot of sometimes anguish, sorrow, setbacks. But don't give up on them. Because if we're just simply looking at their current way of life, then we're not going to be very encouraged or very helpful, actually. We need to think long term. This is going to take time. That's Paul's affection that comes out here in this passage, verse 19. My children, I long for you. I long to see this happen. It's just like when we grew as children or when our children grow. It doesn't happen overnight. They don't become responsible adults overnight. It takes a long time. They, you have to work with them. Encourage them where they, where they are growing and, and uh, challenge them where they're, they're falling back. Is there someone like that that you are working with? I mean, there, there should be a clear pattern of older women teaching younger women. Titus chapter 3. Older men teaching younger men. Not only through informal instruction, but also through example. Is there someone that you're working with and, and you just see and it just feels like 
it's not helpful. It's not working. Okay, again, we need to go back to what's most important here. Christ, the cross, the Gospel, what He did for us. Recognize that that's where we're leading them to. And then ultimately, we need to have Christ formed in us too. So we should ultimately be mentored by other people as well. Looking to other people's example as well. We shouldn't you know, be, be trying to see other people come to more maturity without us doing the same thing. As if we've already arrived. We haven't, have we? So it takes time. It takes work. It takes long-term commitment. And uh, when, when it does, then there will be times where it will feel like Paul feels going through labor right now. But then there's that time when the baby comes, when the, when the believer has come to a place where Christ is formed, where they have been crucified with Christ, where, where they have come to a place of maturity, and where they're now discipling other people behind them, and, and it's, it's like the baby is born. Okay, to take that analogy a little bit farther. So don't give up on it. Keep working. Keep recognizing that those who speak the truth, the truth to you are the people who love you the most. Let's pray. Father, we uh, recognize our weakness in this area, certainly. Church can be just another thought many times. And um, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, we really do have a responsibility to uh, meet together regularly and think about how we can spur one another on to love and good works because we are so susceptible to temptation, to turning away from You. We need each other. I need the congregation here to challenge me and to speak the truth to me. And I, and, and I know each one of them needs each other as well. We all need each other because it's the way that You've determined growth to happen. The way that we avoid being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine is to speak the truth to one another in love. And that requires work. And it requires patience. requires perseverance. We pray that two things would happen as a result of having looked at Your Word this morning. That one, we would be willing to accept the truth from others when they speak it to us. To be teachable. To be humble. And then secondly, we pray that we would be more cognizant of our responsibility to speak the truth to other people despite the potential rejection. Lord, we pray that You'd help us to do it in love. In a tactful way. Not just brazenly throwing out truth statements, not caring how they will be received, but but that we would speak the truth, but in a way that would be kind, in a way we would want to have it spoken to us. Help us in this, we pray. We need wisdom. We need grace as we do this. We pray that You would help us to be more honoring of our Master, Jesus Christ, who saved us, who brought us into Your family even though we do not deserve it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.